have ever wondered what the word remnant means in Revelation, this is it. These are the ones who survived the first horse, and they're saying, we'll try the second and third and fourth horse. Um, I'll tell you, this is actually my most difficult presentation for a couple of reasons. It's almost always after potluck, after the meal. So the only thing that's worse than running against the clock is running against brains that are slowly losing their blood going to the stomach. You know what I mean? So That's right. So it's easy for me to stand up and be losing it. It's worse when you're sitting down and losing it. But anyways, um, I, I don't know if you did not get a copy of one of these. This is a summary of, of what we're talking about. And I'll be very honest with you. My wife much prefers if I just forego the PowerPoint and just preach from the open Bible. I love that. But there's just so much information to share with you. That's why I go with the PowerPoint. So uh, we are going to go quickly. We're going to go real quickly. But that's okay because... You're going to have all this information either on your DVD or on the uh, the YouTube program. So you're going to have all this. You have to promise me if we bow our heads for prayer, you will wake up afterwards, okay? I know how the food's going to start working. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we have had a wonderful Sabbath. We have looked at Daniel 9 this morning. We saw what was changing with taking you out of... Uh, verse 27 there and replacing that with the Antichrist. We saw how the same thing is happening with the first horse. Uh, obviously, the second, third, and fourth horses are no less important. And so, Lord, as we uh, come back together here, I ask that uh, your spirit will keep us alert, that we can move quickly through this in such a way that it is still understandable, and that we understand what the message is that you are trying to share with us, your church. We pray this in your name. Amen. Okay. So, this is where we left. Now, I, I look back here and I see the bright lights. I, I guess you don't have the bright lights in your eyes back there. So, ho hopefully you can see the screen okay. We talked about the opening story this morning. And so, here's the question. If the first rider is Christ, who's the second rider and what message does he have? Now, if you think about this for just a moment... When you go to many of the current evangelical preachers, they're preaching the Antichrist as the first horseman. And then as a result, they preach the Antichrist as the second, third, and fourth horseman as well, or his work. So naturally, I ask the question, if Christ is the rider, I mean, if the biblical evidence points to Christ as the rider of the first horse, I mean, is it possible that the second horseman could also be Christ? So let's take a look at the biblical evidence here today. Okay, second seal. If you have your Bibles, Revelation 6, verse 3 and 4. It's so much better if you're looking at your Bible. Uh, I am one of those who gladly takes my red pen and I make notes in my Bible, so I have those notes in the future. But second seal, Revelation 6, 3 and 4. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come and see, another horse, fiery red, went out. It was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth and that people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. If there is one seal 
that really gets messed up by just the average reader, I think it's this one. Let's take a look at the evidence. First of all, in most of your Bibles, you will find the word kill. The Greek word is svazo, and in some of your translations that you have, you're going to find that the word is better slay. And you'll see why that difference is so important a little bit. Now notice Mounts. Mounts is a commentator, not Adventist, just a commentator. He says, this is not the normal word. In fact, I even put up here, apatino, that is the normal word, and it's used later on in the fourth writer. Now I'll tell you why that's important. When I see these two different Greek words, that tells me that John has a specific message. Why not just use one Greek word in both places? If he uses two different Greek words, then obviously those two Greek words having different meanings are in those seals for a reason. It goes back to our first horse this morning. Why does he not use a royal diadema on the first horse in the seal? Because that's not where the king has talked about. This is where he's doing his conquering victory work. And so he's using the victory wreath. Now we come to here, we find out it's not just the word kill, and some of our newer translations, some of your Bibles will say slay. Now, uh, this is a little bit different because we had to put the slides up here so you get everything at one time, whereas originally I had the slides set up where you would see some information and then you get more added. So it's kind of coming up here a little bit different than normal. But Strong's Concordance, everybody here should know what the Strong's Concordance is. Strong's Concordance, the word spousal means to butcher, especially in sacrifice. And so what I do is I put that big black sacrifice on there. I say, sacrifice, hold that thought. That's not me. That's your concordance telling you this word is related to sacrifice. Let's go a step further. We're looking now at the context of the second seal, and this is where the NIV Bible is helpful. You see, the lamb in heaven in Revelation 5, he was svazod. He was slain. Then we come to the second rider. We have the same word, svazo, slain. Then we come over here to the fifth seal, where we see the altar underneath this, uh, the altar with the souls underneath. They are slain. But notice the fourth rider. John purposely does not use the word svazo. He uses the word apatino, which simply means to kill. Just the fact that you see that should tell you. John is trying to tell me something. He's using a certain word here for slay, a certain word here for slay, a certain word here for slay. Over here he does not because he's very specific with what he's trying to get across as far as a message. So in all these different ones, we have the word sacrifice, 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 not the fourth horse. Now, this word sfazo used only one time outside the book of Revelation. It's used in 1 John. It's talking about when Cain slew, slayed his brother Abel. Cain, who was the evil one, slew Svazo, his brother. And for what reason did he slay Svazo him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. The context, slain over his sacrifice. It was over the issue of worship. The only time that word is used outside of Revelation is in the context of worship and the righteous being slain by the wicked. Going further, another evidence in the second seal, it says he was given a great sword. Check this out. If you have the NIV Bible, it says it was a large sword. Well, that's what the Bible says, or the NIV says. Let's look a little further here. 
We go back to the Strong's Concordance. The Strong's Concordance says that this is a machaira, and they actually give the word knife, not sword, as their main example. Going a little bit further here, we go to the Vines Dictionary. It tells us that this is a short sword or a dagger. And if we go to the Theological Dictionary, it tells us that this is used by the Old Testament priest to slay animals for sacrifice. That's why I put that word in black again, sacrificial, across there. You see, every single one of these should be telling you John is using something sacrificial with each one of these words that he's using. You just look at the text in the English, you would not necessarily know that unless you had slay in your Bible, someone else has kill in their Bible, and you say, well, it's interesting that our Bibles have two different words. Now you know why. Now, evidence number three, the second throne creature. It says, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second beast. Well, I want to go backwards for a moment, something we did not talk about this morning. Who was the beast that opened the first seal? First seal, in your Bibles. Now, when I saw the Lamb open the first seal, I heard one of the first four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, come and see. If you go back in your Bibles to Revelation 4, two chapters earlier, the four creatures, four living creatures were introduced. And here's how they were introduced. They are around the throne, the first one a lion, the second one a calf, the third one a man, the fourth one an eagle. So, When we're looking at this, it says, around the heavenly throne, a lion, a calf is the second one. Now, that's why I make the note up here. Unlike the lion, the man, or the eagle, this second creature, the ox calf, is the only one of the four that is also a sacrificial animal. Every piece of evidence keeps on pointing to something that has to do with sacrifice. Who are these four creatures? Here we have a picture of a stained glass window, the four creatures with the lamb in the center. Going back to Ezekiel, that's where we read about these creatures, the face of a man, a face of a lion, a face of an ox, a face of an eagle. It goes all the way back to Ezekiel and his vision. Then we also find out this is from the sanctuary. Look at this. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, the Israelites are to camp around the tent of the sanctuary, some distance from it, each man under his own standard or emblem, with the banner or flag of his family. On the east, toward the sunrise, the divisions of the camp of Judah are to encamp underneath their standard. You've probably seen this before. This is kind of basic sanctuary. And here we have the standards. Let's see. Up here we have the eagle, and there we have the lion, and here we have the face of a man, and here we have the ox. In Revelation, it's all about the sanctuary. Seven candlesticks, priests, breastplates, elders of bowls, incense, slain lamb. The whole book is all about the sanctuary. Now notice here in Revelation 5. See the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is able to open the scroll. Then I saw the lamb looking to have been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures. You good Seventh-day Adventists, you already know that the sanctuary pointed to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. If everything about the sanctuary pointed to the Messiah, wouldn't the standards that were around the sanctuary also be pointing to the Messiah? But, but we don't even have to guess. Let's keep on going further. Now, this is about Romans. The Romans themselves had standards. And now the Romans, upon the flight of the seditious into the city and upon the burning of the holy house itself, brought their ensigns or banners to the temple. They had their own uh, standards for temples. Brought it to the temple, set them over against this eastern gate, and there did they offer sacrifices to them. Now, here's William Barclay. 
great well-known commentator. The earliest and the fullest identification was made by the Bishop of Lyons, Irenaeus, in about 170. He held that the four living creatures represented four aspects of the work of Jesus Christ, which in turn represented the four Gospels. Hey, he's teaching the same thing we as some Thavis teach. When I was in England, I thought it was so neat. I, I walked into this very old church, and here was this old altar altar with all of these four living creatures. They were in the wood, carved right in with the Bible that would go right in the center. So right in the center, you would have Christ, the Lamb, the Word, and then the four living creatures all around there. Notice Stephen Haskell, one of our Adventist early commentators. Those living creatures, as they surround the throne, reflect the character of God. Do you see how they're pulling the four living creatures and their different faces close to Christ, having something to do with Christ? Here, uh, Dr. Lauren Nelson, uh, he's a ministerial director, our, our former ministerial director at the Michigan Conference. These are characteristics of Jesus. So here's the point. Second seal. The knife, sacrificial. The animal, second one, sacrificial. The very death, not kill, slay, sacrificial. Everything here points to sacrifice. Now, one more piece of evidence. The writer takes peace. And this is where so many people read this text so quickly, they do not actually catch what it's saying. Here it says, Power was given to the writer that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and there was given unto him this great sword. Notice, speaking of Jesus, Matthew 10. Jesus said, Think not that I am come to send peace on the earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. Now, here's what Tim LaHaye does. And this is what most evangelicals do. They say the first horseman is the Antichrist, so obviously all the other ones are also Antichrist. My question is, if Christ is the rider on the first horse, could he also be the rider on the second seal? And would his ministry have anything to do with sacrifice? I mean, the answer is so obvious, so obvious. And there stood a lamb as though it had been slain. Revelation 5, just before you open up to the four horsemen, Revelation 5, the same Greek word. Jesus Christ was not just killed, he was slain. He was a sacrifice. And so in Revelation 5, when you read about him being victorious, it's based on the cross, which is what we talked about earlier today when we talked about wearing that Stephanos throne or Stephanos uh, uh, crown with the thorns in it. Also, he's the high priest of the sanctuary. We know this. I mean, all of Revelation is about Jesus Christ and his work in the heavenly sanctuary. Hebrews 8, again, we talk about Christ being the minister of the sanctuary. It's all about sanctuary. The fact is, the features of the second rider perfectly match Christ's ministry as our high priest in the heavenly sanctuary. So, if we just stop there and take a breath, here's the summary. First seal, gospel, victory. Second seal, sacrifice, personal surrender. They also go together in the New Testament. Notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He starts off with the gospel. Then he brings in the dying daily. The dying daily is what we do. The dying daily is not just dying. The dying daily is sacrifice. And thereby gain the victory Nike through Jesus. He brings in the same word. He brings in Nike in relationship to the gospel and to sacrifice. Now, this, of course, leaves the question because people often say, or believers often say, well, you know, we have to die to Christ. Well, what exactly does that mean? I like the way Romans puts it. 
Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual worship. Offer up spiritual sacrifices. Here's Jesus' words. Take up your cross daily. Here's a pretty strong statement. Christians should reflect carefully before sacrificing their souls on the altar of the world's entertainment. Huh. You don't often think of necessarily offering yourself as a sacrifice to the world. But yet it's either the world or it's Christ. And the two are diametrically opposed. Billy Graham, the seals are primarily a call to repentance. Matthew Henry, Christ goes on, now notice how he blends the first and second seals. Christ goes on conquering in the work of sanctification. The sanctification, if you will, pastor, is each one of us coming daily to the altar, each one of us daily coming to the cross. I love how Ellen White puts it. She, she mixes, she blends here the second seal with the first seal. We need to repent constantly that we may be constantly victorious. Hey, boy, she just made it really easy. How do I have victory? Start off with prayer. Start off with Jesus. Give my life over to him at the beginning of each day. It doesn't do me much good if I get to the end of the day and then come you know, on my knees and say, well, Lord, I made it today. That's not what he's looking for. He's looking to be the one who's in us, who helps us be victorious daily. Message of the second seal, daily surrender and going repentance. Oh, and then there was this one. Evidence number five, who's actually doing the killing? The text does not say that the rider with the sword is doing the killing. It says the people should kill one another. In the Amplified Bible, it says men slaughtered one another using that word svazo. Here's Jesus. You will be hated of all men for my sake. They may persecute you. A man's enemy shall be those of his own household. In other words, accepting the cross and surrendering our lives to Jesus may result in persecution. And history confirms, just like it did with the first seal, what we're talking about. In the first seal, the gospel advanced victoriously. Under the second seal, we as a church in our Revelation seminars, we've always explained, soon after, the church began to suffer persecution. Tertullian, the blood of the martyrs, is the seed of the church. Second seal, we have the cross, we have surrender, we have self-sacrifice, and we have persecution. And so there it is. Victory, how do we become victorious? Christ has shown us how. It's all about the cross. So I take a breath? Are you still with me? Okay. The food, food, we're okay with the food? It's lasting, okay. I told you, Pastor, this is why I call this group the remnant. They're, they're still hanging in there, okay? Okay. It's a lot of information. Oh, but please, remember, remember, do take one of these afterwards. It's so, so simply written here for everyone, and this will all be on the DVD afterwards or, or the program, so you can go back and, and look at this. Okay, uh, third seal in your Bibles, Revelation 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. Revelation 5 and 6. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see, and behold, a black horse, and he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny, and see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. Okay, so under the first white horse, we had victory, had gospel. Now we have just the opposite. We have black. And the conditions in the seal, just, just reading it, you already know we're looking at a famine condition and some sort of warning here. 
Now, the red is a little hard. Can you see the red lettering okay? All right. So now, check this out. We have the wheat and the barley. We have the oil, olives and the grapes. And here's the various interpretations. Some people will say, well, the wheat equals the word of God. And the oil represents the Holy Spirit. And the wine represents Christ's blood. And the barley, uh-oh, barley is a cheap grain. How can we apply a cheap grain to Christ? Now, I don't know about you. I'm not satisfied with an interpretation that I am only 75% comfortable with. That's not what I want to present. I want to keep on studying it out. Something tells me that when John first wrote this to the churches, that wasn't his intention. And I think we can prove that. Now, notice here in these books, these are all Adventist books. Uh, Let's see, he says that those things are worldly goods. He says they represent spiritual life. He says they're corrupted religion. Wow, we're kind of all over the board here, aren't we? Okay. All right. Oh, look at this. Mervyn Maxwell writes, these are staple foods in ancient times. Can I say, duh? Isn't that easiest? These were foods back then. Let's just go with the natural flow of it here. We have the wheat and the barley. We have the olive and the grapes. My question is, why are they divided that way? In your Bible, it says that the wheat and the barley have been suffering, the olive and grapes, not yet. Why are they divided that way? And there's only one explanation. And the one explanation is the same one that any one of the people in the early church hearing the revelation for the first time would have understood. And there it is. Over here we have the barley harvest. You know, all those crops, shallow crops. Those are in the spring. And over here in the fall, we have the harvest of the fruit, which includes your olives and such. They're, they're two different times of the year. So we have wheat and barley over here, and we have the, the olives and the grapes over here. Uh, in fact, wait a minute. Oh, check this out. This one is suffering a, a famine. This one The Bible tells us we don't know what's going to happen to that one. And immediately after that one, the Jews will be celebrating the Day of Atonement, the Day of Judgment at the end of the world, or the the end of the year. Now, it also mentions balances in your text. It tells us that a measure, or a loaf of bread, now costs a penny, which is a day's wage. That's a bad situation. That's a famine situation. But we should not lose sight of the fact that those people who first heard the book of Revelation read to them also understood that a famine was an Old Testament covenant curse for being unfaithful. Right out of Leviticus. Is the hint too obvious? So what's the big deal about a famine? Look at the book of Joel. Famine condition because they were disobedient to the covenant. As a result, no crops, and as a worse result, the sanctuary closed. If there's no one in the sanctuary, uh, how are your sins forgiven? And suddenly we have a pretty serious message. No forgiveness for sin. 
Here's the prophet. Well, you vine dressers, because the harvest of the field has perished, the grain offering and the drink offering, that's both of them. That, that's both the spring and the fall. They have both been cut off from the house of the Lord, the priests mourn, who minister to the Lord. Consecrate a fast. Turn to me. Repent. Wow. Now, how would the early Christian understand the third seal? Well, first of all, they would have understood there's two harvests. They would understand that the first harvest was hurt. That's the famine. They would understand, of course, that this was based on unfaithfulness in the covenant relationship in the past. They would understand that the final harvest is nearing, and they would understand that the day of judgment or day of atonement immediately follows that. In fact, those balances, that should tell us something. We all know about the balances there in Daniel 5 with the uh, king, but as we go throughout the Bible, we find that the balances were often used to talk about people's character in the light of God. The Christian has entered into a covenant relationship with Christ. Revelation is written to the church, Christ our high priest, and there is a universal day of atonement. These are basic things we've talked about. But notice here, Revelation 14. Behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, we read this this morning, and in his hand a sharp sickle. Another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat in the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth. Who's doing the reaping? We just don't like to use the name Jesus out loud when it comes to serious things. But it's him. Probation is about to close. Characters are being weighed. All will be eternally judged. Oh, and by the way, we were just talking about the faces of the living creatures. Now, the face of the living creature, the first one is a lion. So it kind of makes sense in your Bible that when the first, first living creature introduces the white horse, it says he has the voice of thunder. None of the other three faces would match that. And then you just saw in your Bibles a few moments ago that the second creature introducing the second bloody red seal happened to be the ox. The only one of the four that is also sacrificial. And now the third one, we have the face as a man. Now that's very interesting because as this seal is warning us that the day of atonement is coming, well, there's only one high priest in the book of Revelation. And that high priest is a man. None of the other three faces would fit this. Christ a man is our high priest ministering for us in the heavenly sanctuary. Oh, and then, of course, we don't want to forget history. We've been teaching history all these years. History confirms the prophecy. The church began to compromise with paganism and man-made tradition, sinking into spiritual more black darkness. Here, Tim LaHaye, I like the fact that he really lays out the very things that the church started doing. It began to worship images. The earthly priesthood came in. The self-indulgences. The doctrine of purgatory. And tradition equal to the Bible. And so here's my questions. Am I coming to the altar daily? Is the gospel still powerful in my life? Am I experiencing daily victories? Is there a zeal within me to lead others to salvation or to fuller truth? You see, when we start looking at the seals this way, this is so different. I mean, pastor, for years we've just been talking history, history, history. But what if there's a Jesus behind all this? What if he is the writer? Now, over lunch, some of you mentioned... You had never you had never heard that somebody was suggesting that the rider on the white horse is the Antichrist. I will guarantee you this. I will guarantee you this. If you start studying with good Bible students, I mean people who know their Bibles, if you start studying 
with people who are not Seventh-day Adventists, who are good Bible students, you will be faced with these very things when you come to Revelation. Those Christians know their Bibles. We may not believe the same, but that does not mean that they are not good Bible students. I start studying with somebody, first horse, I start studying with somebody, Daniel 9, they understand there's a rapture. They understand there's seven years of tribulation at the end. They understand that this is all about the Antichrist. If you start studying with people, I'll tell you what, it will force you to study your Bible like you've never studied before. Don't be afraid of people who know their Bible as well. That's a blessing to you. The fourth horse. Who does this horseman represent? And why are there only four? And your Bibles begin with verse 7. When he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was death, and hell followed with him. And the power was given unto them in the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword and with hunger and with death and the beasts of the earth. If you know your Old Testament, this should be jumping out at you. Question, what does this writer possibly have to do with the church? Well, here's our first evidence, and it's a big one. It takes up most of the text. Sword, hunger, or famine, death, plague, or pestilence, wild beasts. Where have we seen all of these before? There's only two passages in the Old Testament. Here's one of them. Ezekiel 14, 21. For thus says the Lord God, how much more when I send my four severe judgments against who? This is a message to the church. This is a message to the church. Now from over there across the pond, I think that's what you call the ocean over here, isn't it? The pond between you and me. I'm sitting here, I'm listening to Pastor Lloyd. Pastor Lloyd's talking about spiritual Israel. We are spiritual Israel. We like the sound of that. Oh, we're not like ancient Israel. No, we, we would not do the things they did. We've learned from their mistakes. We're spiritual Israel. But wait a minute. If this was a message to Israel, and this is being lifted out of the Old Testament, brought over here to the New Testament, and put in the context of the church, then this message is for you and me. Sword, famine, wild beast, and plague that cut off man and beast from it. Here's Jeremiah. I will send the sword, the famine, and the pestilence upon them until they are destroyed from the land which I gave or promised to them and their forefathers. So the question here is, who is God speaking to? Answer, his covenant people on faithful Israel. I mean, that's just pretty clear. Now, here, from our symposium revelation, our Adventist book here, Dr. Lon Riddell writes, in John's apocalypse, all the Old Testament promises, oh, we like those. Old Testament promises, we like those. All the Old Testament promises, oh, and threats, are transformed into blessings and curses of Jesus Christ. You see, we don't preach this. It is far easier to preach church history. This stuff gets personal. If we leave Jesus out of it and we just talk about church history, oh, we can tell people, hey, this is where the church went wrong way back then. And if you want to be on the right side today, come here, be here on Sabbath morning. But this gets personal. 
do you really want to be spiritual Israel? Are you really in a covenant relationship? Are you and I really being faithful in our relationship? How comfortable are we with the name spiritual Israel knowing all this? Oh, and then notice that word kill. Remember under the second seal, it was the word slay, sfazo? No more. There was a time under the second seal that we could surrender ourselves as living sacrifices. When you come to the fourth horse, it's all done. It's all done. Here, the word kill, apictino, no longer sacrificial sfazo slaying the second seal. The opportunity to repent, that's long gone. Oh, and then the sword. It's not even the Makaira knife anymore. It's not the knife that the priests use. It has nothing to do with sacrifice. Now we have the Ramphaya sword. This is the longer sword. This is the same sword that's used for execution. But wait a minute. Who is the one that wields the sword? Who's carrying the sword? Who's using this sword? Well, Revelation tells us. Revelation chapter 19. And the rest of the wicked were killed with the Ramphaya sword that came out of the mouth of him, capital H, came out of him who was on the white horse. Ephesians, the sword, which is really the Machira knife of the spirit, which is the word of God, and then Hebrews, for the word of God is sharper than any two-edged Machira sword, discerning the intents of the heart. But then Revelation, Christ executes his judgment with the Raphaia. The reason I put these texts up for you is I want you to see, in the first two texts, in Ephesians and Hebrews, those passages are talking about what Christ can do, what Christ can accomplish with you if you allow him to be your high priest with his priestly knife. But there comes a point where the, priest, the priesthood is done. Everything that could possibly be done to win you over to Christ has been done. And if you have turned him away, he, he won't force you. And when we come to the last one, it's no longer about the Machira. It's now about the Ramphaya, the final one. Now this gets a little tricky. Evidence number four. The rider was named Death, and eternal hell followed in the wake of his actions. Well, you can imagine, that's the question I often get. Even before I study the second and third horsemen, I'll often have people say, but Jim, you're not going to suggest that the fourth rider is Jesus. Who alone has authority over eternal life and death? It's not the Antichrist. It's not the Antichrist. I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of hell and death. Notice the message to the seven churches. We don't talk about this. When we do a presentation on Revelation, we're not talking about repentance. We're talking about church history in the seven churches. Notice how personal... Seven churches, over and over again, repent, 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 repent. We don't talk about that in our Revelation seminars. This is personal. Seven trumpets. Notice what happens after the four horsemen are all done. In the following section of the seven trumpets, we come right back to that same word, repent. But the rest of mankind who were not apocalyptical killed by these plagues did not repent. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual morality or their thefts. If you have not repented under the seven churches, well, the next time repentance comes up is in the trumpets. They would not repent. They would not reply. They would not respond to Jesus' personal messages in the seven churches. So, 
who was the fourth horseman? Here's my questions for you. I'll let you decide. We, we have a TV station back in the States. It's called Fox News. And their famous little line is, we report, you decide. I just report. I'll let you decide. Here's my questions. Is it not Christ who possesses the keys of hell and death? I think you can answer that. Do not the rejectors of the gospel flee from the wrath of the Lamb in Revelation 6? It's in your Bible. Is it not Christ who uses the same Ramphia sword to destroy all wickedness in Revelation 19? Yes, it is. Is the new covenant not born out of Christ's blood? True. Does not the destiny of every soul lie with Christ, not the Antichrist? Absolutely. I found this very interesting. Joseph Trafton. But the references to death in Hades reminds the reader that Jesus has the keys to death in Hades. For the attentive reader, then, the section containing the first four seals, that's the four horsemen, begins and ends with Jesus. William Hendrickson, More Than Conquerors, it would not surprise us if here too, the second, fourth riders are subservient to the first. They are Christ's instruments for the refining and strengthening of his people. Dr. Kenneth Strand from our Andrews University, the breaking of the seals would therefore represent successive steps or means by which God, through Christ, acts in preparing the world for judgment. And this is my best attempt to summarize the wording here. It's reasonable to conclude that the fourth horseman's activity is based on Christ's authority and entirely under his control. Since he does hold the keys of death and Hades, he is intimately involved. Well, there you have it. Revelation's opening story. By having this up here, now you'll have this on your DVD. Let's see, it started this morning with the first seal. Jesus, victor, seven churches, overcome, Nike, as I overcame. How, Lord, did you do that? I prevailed, I Nike'd through my sacrifice, Svazo. As a sacrificial lamb, I am the one who can take the seven sealed scroll and open it. Four horses, beginning with the white one. The lion introduces the white one. This rider goes forth. He has conquered Nike. It's all about faith. He wears the victor Stephanos that began at the cross. The Stephanos is what Jesus also wears in 1414. The next creature, the ox, a sacrificial one under a blood-red horse, the Machaira, the priestly knife, Sfazo, priestly death, sacrificial death, the words of Jesus, deny self, take up your cross daily, surrender, Paul, become living sacrifices, and the warning, persecution may follow, the text, they killed one another. Then, the face of a man, introduced with the black horse, the spring crops, famine, Fall, we don't know what the end will be because it's a personal decision. I don't know what your personal decision, decision will be. Balances. The day of judgment follows the fall harvest. And then finally, the ego. Very interesting. 
If you check your Bible concordance, you'll find that the word eagle and the word vulture is the same word, atos. It depends on the context. In some places in the New Testament, Christ is like an eagle. But in some places in the New Testament, the work of Christ is one that's associated with vultures around the carcass. Apectino, just a plain death. Remphia, just a plain deadly sword. The judgments come right from the Old Testament, lifted right out. Crazy, isn't it? And we thought four horses are just about church history. We had it so well memorized. And then all it took was just one person, one person raising his hand there in the church and saying, so Mr. Merrills, what are you saying? That the Antichrist was guiding the church? I'll tell you what, as a Seventh-day Adventist young person who went through academy, it was really troubling when I could not get beyond Revelation 6. It was a real blessing and a change for my life when I met Dr. John Pauline at the Andrews Seminary. I was there when he did his dissertation on the trumpets, and six of us were selected to sit in on his dissertation and, and to put it to work. His dissertation was twofold. The first half of his dissertation, and it really should have been just one dissertation because the thing was just so large, but the first half of his dissertation was, how do we interpret Revelation? And then the second part of his dissertation was, here, let's try it with the seven trumpets. That's a real challenge to Adventist. And there were six of us in the room, and our assignment was to pick some part of Revelation to apply his dissertation. And I immediately went for the four horsemen, because I couldn't find the answers in our Adventist books. Nobody even talked about the rider. And even today, what I've put up here on the board, we have Mark Finley, and we have John Pauline, who will come out and tell you the rider on the white horse is Jesus Christ, but they don't, they don't give you a reason for their explanation. Uh, I can take you down to the Christian bookstore and we can open up the eye candy books and, and there they'll give you reasons. And the next thing you know, you're on to Red Russia with the second seal. So it was a blessing that the Lord put me in that place. Here's the crazy part. There's nothing hard about what I've shown you. The first thing I did was what Dr. Pauline was suggesting. Why don't you just read the text? I mean, really read it. Don't depend on the NIV or the King James or any other translation. What did they actually say? What were the Greek words? I mean, today we can go on the computer, we can, we can open up a Bible concordance, within seconds you can see the words. That's all we had to do to start. And then all I've done here, and this, this is not rocket science, all I've done is taken the time to go back through and start, start writing down, well, what did this Adventist author say? And what did this Adventist author? And, you know, I, I get excited, Pastor Lloyd, when, when I share this with other pastors, because other pastors just haven't had the time to sit down and do an exhaustive study on just one topic like this. 
But I'll tell you what, I do believe this. I don't think you'll ever look at Revelation the same way again. And now that you have looked at how we have studied the four horsemen and their messages, I suspect that you might be wondering about some other passages of Revelation. It couldn't all be church history or it would not have made sense to the people that the Revelation was first given. Oh, and those people? Let's see, those were mothers with children, farmers, tradesmen. They weren't Bible scholars. This wasn't given to us to be hard. For us, the only hard part is committing time to study God's Word. I hope this has been a blessing to you. I hope you have learned something. If you've only learned one thing new today, I'll be more than happy. Brother Lloyd and I were talking on Facebook one day, and I think he has figured out by now if, if a church says, yeah, you can come here and preach, I'm going to find a way to get there, even if it is halfway around the world. But I love taking this message around. I love for people to understand that when they open the book of Revelation and they read the initial words, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, that in fact, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so if today... If through any of these messages, I have opened your eyes just a little bit more to what the Holy Spirit has been trying to say. And if today, if you walk out of here knowing that there's a reason why you don't believe in the Antichrist in Daniel 9 and the Antichrist in Revelation 6, and that in fact this book is about Jesus and his church, and that the message is absolutely personal for each one of us, then that 14-hour flight over here would have been well worth it. I know you're all comfortable, but would you mind standing with me as we have closing prayer? Oh, gracious Lord. Just the fact that we have the technology to fly around the world and study together and over the internet. What a blessing. Lord, I prayed at the beginning and I, I pray again that everything that I have said and uh, said here during the presentation today is exactly what your Holy Spirit would have me say. Lord, I thank you for this wonderful opportunity to meet all these wonderful people, to, to, to meet the people of Australia and the people of Sydney in, in particular. Lord, I thank you for the friendship that, that has just grown with Pastor Loy and I over, of all things, you know, Facebook here. But Lord, I don't care who it is in this room, myself and Pastor Lloyd included, may we keep your word and the study of your word and our interest in your word. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just give us a craving to know more. And most of all, Lord, don't let it stop with us. Let us be the instruments. May your victory be strong through us. May our lives be the reason that people want to, to reach out to you for their help. May people see in us something that is different. 
Oh, Lord, we've had a beautiful Sabbath together. And I pray now for your Holy Spirit to continue to guide each one of us as we continue to pray and grow and study. Until that day, Lord, when we come together as the great 144,000, the great multitude standing before the throne, until that day, Lord, be with us. And may you find each one of us standing for you in true faith. In your name we pray. Amen.